Steve and Kevin analyze the London Mulligan for Vintage on episode 88 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 88 of So Many Insane Plays, our analysis of the proposed London Mulligan rule. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hello, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. For announcements, let's talk about upcoming tournament. So we had a little bit of a break here in um, Southwest Michigan in terms of our tournaments, but we've also had a bit of a breakthrough. I think I <laughs> mentioned in our, our prior show about how we've had the, uh, our first of our local proxy vintage in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the Gaming Warehouse. That event had, let me see, 12 people, which was great. A pretty good success for a starting tournament. And we also know that there are a a handful of locals who weren't able to make that event. It was a snowy day, etc. Winter has that effect on things here in Michigan. So the good news is, is we have a new scene for monthly or semi-monthly uh, proxy tournaments in Grand Rapids, and that's going to be great. I don't know when the next one of those is, but you can be sure that I'll announce it here on the show. And I'll try. To, I'm starting to try to be better about announcing that kind of thing uh, on <laughs> social media. As you we, should be. You promote <laughs> yeah, the I know. Pro- promote paper vintage in your area. You um, are absolutely correct. We've had some pretty good turnout in some of the more recent events at Eudaimonia. The next big vintage event in in Berkeley is on Sunday, March seventeenth, which is actually the second vintage event of the of the month. Um, nice. So it should have good turnout, up to fifteen proxies. Uh, it'll be great. Awesome. So, Steve, any other article content for you of late? Not right now. Is there going to be any coverage of the awesome? Um, old school magic transaction that you were party to <laughs> there definitely will be i i discussed this a little bit on twitter and during the uh eighth episode of season nine of the vsl but there will be videos all over the internet so you, it won't be hard to find i don't need to advertise <laughs> that here all right fair enough so it's, suffice it to say we'll be uh, plugging that as best we can over social media and future shows as well so related to announcements let's talk about the latest in the vsl at the time of this recording, we find ourselves post-regular uh, season on the VSL this this time. And sadly, we have to report that both Steve and I are out for the playoff. It was nip and tuck for both of us <laughs> in our in our last uh, weeks of play. But sadly, we both finished up uh, just out of the running. And so we get to be on the outside looking in for the first round of the playoffs, which starts next week. And it starts with all of the 4-2 players vying to fight against the 5-1 players. Andy Pervasco, Andy Markenton, Andreas Peterson, and who's the other 4-2? Cyrus. Or Cyrus, of course. That's right. Mm-hmm. So those will be the 4-2s playing in the first round of the playoffs. They're waiting to face the 3-5-1s who are Randy, Rachel, and Rich. So only one of the 4-2s will make it into the, Correct. Yeah, the semis. And then there will be a four-person playoff beyond that. Pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, you and I both finished with identical records, three and three, but we mm-hmm. also did identical records by semester. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> two and one into one and two, which I have to admit is is a little disappointing. 
Yeah. It's not high drama necessarily, but disappointing. Well, let's start with yours. I, I think your match, there was one match in particular where I think you'd like at least one playback. So why don't you talk about that? As tra- traumatic as it can be to relive that, why don't you at least <laughs> let it out? So Randy and I both showed up with Paradoxical Outcome in our last uh, week playing, and I needed the 2-1 finish, and he needed just a 1-2 because he was 3-0 and going into that week. So we both chose pretty powerful archetypes, and our lists were not far off. They were only four or five cards different. I had um, access to more Remoras. I had a Mind Break Trap in my sideboard, some things like that. I also had Tendrils. He had um, Tendrils, but he also had Mind's Desire, and his list was a little more Storm aggressive. Now, our match started off, um, and, and I knew this, this match was going to be pretty draw-dependent, right? Our decks are 90-plus percent the same. Uh, we both can do the same powerful things. It's just a, a little bit about lineup. And our match started off with my opening hand on the draw having Remora, but no counter magic. Remora and no force of will. And in my experience, Paradoxical Outcome is not really a turn one deck, right? There's just so many times when the, the turn one is a setup turn, casting a, a cantrip or a top or a tutor of some kind, right? It's quite reasonable, in my opinion, to have a remora like that on the draw especially since i had some mana to feed it with well randy proceeds to play his whole hand on the first turn which is disappointing in the presence of my remora but it it kind of it kind of concluded with he put a second top into play and spun both of them and then outcome and from there he was off to the races and he played 24 spells on the first turn and tendrils me out (laughs) and i was pretty disappointed um because I had that remora and I thought it was going to be pretty excellent in the matchup. While the I was already dead, while we were doing the whole getting ready to sideboard thing, I clicked draw a card on Magic Online 24 times <laughs> to see what would have happened if I was on the play and there were zero force of wills in those yeah. 24 cards. <laughs> yeah. So even if I had been on the play and just gone remora go, Randy's line would still have just won him the game. Pretty pretty funny, a little bit frustrating. But our second game is the one that really has the the bombast to it, and it was a quite, actually quite a long, abnormally long game for a paradoxical outcome mirror, and very interesting. Um, the long and the short of it is is that I had Remora on the play again. I also had access to Talarian Academy and a whole bunch of counter spells. Too many counter spells, actually. It turns out because I drew like um, multiple Moxin and Remora, and the game went so long that I paid for that Remora for eight turns. That's eight turns after turn one. That's nine turns of having Remora in play on Randy's side. And I drew tons and tons of cards. But at one critical point in the mid game, like turn three-ish, turn four-ish, I don't remember, Randy gave me a couple of cards to play some accelerants, and then he played Comball. Yeah. In doing so, my hand was something like Force, Force, Fluster, Fluster, Mind Break Trap, and just no action. <laughs> and that was it was highly relevant, the fact that I drew those five counter spells. Because I needed to fight over this combo, and I had to pitch one of my fluster storms to Force of Will, and then fight over that combo with uh, with Mind Break Trap, and that turned out to be highly, highly relevant. Because as the game evolved, it got to the point, <laughs> pretty absurdly, a couple of turns later, where both of us had our whole libraries in our hand. Yep. <laughs> that is to say, mine was in my hand. Most of his was in exile from Mind's Desire, but both of us had zero cards in library. And so he was committed to a line, and I was committed to a line, quite obviously, that result that I couldn't possibly win. And part of the reason for that was because I had pitched that one fluster storm so early in the game. But the pivotal point that I think you're alluding to happened at, a, at about my ninth turn when I drew <laughs> 
Merchant Scroll. Yes. And it was just about the first action I had drawn that game, honestly. I had not seen an outcome. I had seen a Sensei's Divining Top, which Randy Force of Willed about two turns earlier, which, you know, hindsight says maybe I should have fought over that. But I cast my Merchant Scroll, tapping down very low on mana, tapping down to, I think, two mana sources on tap, um, because I had to pay for Remora on eight. And I chose to get Paradoxical Outcome, reasoning that I had so much mana that and active Remora that there was a very good chance that I was going to be able to go off next turn. Well, which the is trick true. is, with the, yeah, which is probably almost certainly true. Uh, the trick is, though, is that Randy had just played his eighth mana source on the turn before, and he was in a position where he could outcome on my end step and pay four mana for Remora to prevent me from drawing a card, which is ultimately of little consequence when even he's, you know, he's putting, drawing, putting up a yeah. Remora. Yeah, or I'm sorry, uh, an outcome. And so I had to force of will that uh, outcome. And that wasn't really the problem. The problem was that as he went to his next turn, he had another outcome and he played it. And I had a pivotal moment there where I had to decide whether or not I should spend a force of will on that outcome or a fluster storm on that outcome. And I reasoned that he had his own fluster storm there because we knew each other's list. And I reasoned that it was much better for me to try and wait later for him to commit more cards because in order for him to go off, he's going to have to give me tons and tons of cards, right? And the simple truth is, is that I think I lost that game when I cast Merchant Scroll for Outcome, and Agreed. I didn't realize it. I didn't suss out the fact of how the game was going to go, having pitched my second Flusterstorm and having already used Mindbreak Trap, that I wasn't actually going to be able to beat his combination of Outcomes, Force of Wills, and Flusterstorms if he drew them in the right order. It was a pure lineup exercise that I think I failed at, and was a little too enamored with how strange and long the game had gone, and how linear it seemed merchant scroll was to go get outcome and just try and push the envelope and in hindsight i think there was probably a better thing for me to do i had access to time walk in my hand which i intentionally held because remora was so high in its count but it seems pretty clear now that i probably should have played some combination of merchant scroll and time walk and sequenced them in such an order as to to learn what he what he valued in terms of potentially countering me and uh and i probably could have won that game in theory in practice, I'm not sure if I would have executed it properly then either. Yeah, I think that's that's a very honest um, and I think accurate self analysis. There's virtually no chance I would not have played Time Walk there if I were in your <laughs> shoes, and Fair I enough. probably would have led with Time Walk once I drew this scroll. Yeah, and and then that way he doesn't have enough. If he does have a fluster storm, he doesn't have enough mana to stop it. If he forces the Time Walk, fine. Then you just scroll uh, for PO and then PO on the Time Walk turn. I just would have let, I probably would have let the Remora just go. Possibly well, would have kept it, but but with the protection of Force of Will and Flusterstorm to protect PO, you know, hardcasting both, I would have, that's the route I, oh, you also had Lavinia in hand, so you could pitch that. That's probably the route I would have gone. Yeah, well, I think that's reasonable, and I, it's, it's you and know, it's not deterministic by any stretch. I don't, I don't think you would have lost. You would have been, like, your chances of winning, if you PO under that circumstance, so you had five permanents plus five uh, artifacts plus remora plus remora yeah yeah if the remora goes it, you're drawing five there i just don't see you losing from that point <laughs> so i think ultimately that would have been the result i probably would have won however i feel like my judgment was clouded in the moment because of how aberrant the game was and it's it was a little hard for me it's hard to read your outcome opponent when nine turns have gone by <laughs> yeah um, yeah and so I read him for having access to like one outcome, but probably having some counter magic also. And the, yeah. my concern was that I was tapping so low on mana 
I did have exactly enough mana, I think, to make the play that you described. Because, as I said, I did pass the turn with two mana up. Those two mana could have been spent on Time Walk. I think I felt potentially like I was worried that he had just double counter with Outcome. Because in order to execute that plan, it does potentially require me to fully tap out. And if he has just Fluster and Force, I, I think he gets to counter my walk and my scroll and then untap and maybe win. And since I had already spent um, Mind Break Trap that game, I had access to no more. I knew that I couldn't defeat him with just Force of Will. The odds of my defeating him with just Force of Wills was very slim. So I kind of, I do wish I had taken your line in hindsight, but it was hard for me to suss out in the moment what was more likely. Was it more likely that he had a hand that could just go off right there with double outcome? Or was it more likely that he had force plus fluster? So That's regardless, fair. I mean, regardless, when, when I mean, you, this is why we play the game and discuss it is because <laughs> there's there's no yeah. perfect choices in th- situations like this. I, I th- it is certainly hard to make the decision in the blind, but yeah. I also think regardless of the specific circumstances, you have to take the shots when the opportunities arise. <laughs> and no matter how small the window is, you have to do your best to punch through that window. Yeah. Um, that's just how vintage is. And you had a window that was large enough that you could have certainly crept through, yep. regardless of a range of possible things that he had. Yeah, now, I know for true. someone who plays as conservatively as me, that's big talk. But <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh but that's that's nonetheless, I think. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, Steve's method of punching through a window is discarding Delver to hand size. <laughs> it, <laughs> but anyway. I, I seem to have a disproportionate number of like very memorable matches in the VSL. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, from my matches against V L S V in, in week eight, which is the most recently past week, I had three really great matches, but two kind of superb superlative matches. Mm-hmm. My match against uh, Matt Sperling and my match against Rich Shea are kind of like uh, highlight reel vintage format matches, um, you know. And and having been mostly on the losing end of these like um, super memorable matches, whether you're talking about LSV or the Sperling match or the Shea match, it's it seems to me that what the common thread, Kevin, in all of those all of those matches is, I'm hugely advantage. I have a huge advantage, and I somehow lose. Not necessarily <laughs> because of any punt on my part. In fact, I think both against Shea and Sperling, I played pretty well. I think better against, it's hard to say. I mean, there were probably very minor things, and I I could tell you, it wasn't quite as obvious as like your situation where there was like an obvious window of opportunity, you know, despite the fact that there were risks. Mm -hmm. In my matches against both, there were probably tiny little things I could have done. I don't know if it would have actually changed the result. But but nonetheless, both Rich and Matt did some really spectacular things. Like they played really well at points, really well at points. And I'll mention what those are, but it also seems to me, Kevin, that when you think think about and this, anyone listening can can think about this for a moment. What makes a great match or game of magic, mm. right? Now, when we think about what makes a bad game or match of magic, we probably think about games that are fast, quick, and lopsided. Fair enough, right? <laughs> but that doesn't mean that the inverse is true. It doesn't mean that games that are super close are great games either. I think it, I think like it's interesting in. In um, game three against Richie, Kevin, there were two points in the match. Sorry, two points in game three. Two s- different points in the in the game mm-hmm. where Rich and I had basically blown each other's hands out and were in top deck mode. Mm-hmm. One point was where I played balance. He had no cards in his hand, and I had no cards in my hand, and we had not, none of us had any permanence in play besides mana. So, like, we had essentially reset the game. Mm-hmm. And then a few turns before that, um, I played pyroclasm, wiping his board. And I played Treasure Cruise, and he used his last counterspell in hand. So we were both empty in top decking. 
this, but that's not what I think makes a great game. I don't think like both players like like knocking each other out and then starting back at zero is actually what makes it a great game. Mm-hmm. I think that that makes probably a better game than the lopsided. But like imagine this in like sports terms, how you have you know those uh, line graphs that show which team is advantage at any point in the game and their probability of winning. You know right. the advantage bar, if you will. Mm-hmm. You've seen those, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so a great game isn't necessarily, I don't think a game, certainly a bad game is when like one, pl- one team is like 90% through the whole time and they go up to 99.9. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily think a great and super memorable game is a game where the advantage bar is at like 50% the entire time. Rather, <laughs> I think the best games are those where the advantage bar swings wildly back and forth during the course of the game. So it'd be like a football game where you're on the ESPN advantage bar or the 538 advantage bar and the game goes from like 70% win on one side to 70% on the other, and it does that a number of times. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually happened in both my match against Rich and my match against uh, Matt. And the thing about my, my both matches is that, um, so that's maybe like my analysis of what makes a great match. And I think both matches did that. But what's incredible about is that, first of all, I think my deck was very well positioned in my pod. Mm-hmm. I think I was just the like Matt even said this interviewing. He, he feels like my deck was just better off against his, which I think it imper- just objectively was. And I also think I had an it was more less obvious, but I think I had a strong advantage against Rich too. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but in in the cases, they, in both cases, they came down to game threes where they were really won by by superlative play. In the case of of Rich Shea, which is the easiest one, in game three, he made a decision. That even though I was under three, well, first of all, when I brainstormed, by the way, um, when he had a pyromancer and a token, um, and I was at six life, and I let him attack, and then I went to three, and then drew another card, and I brainstormed. The third card down was brainstorm, assuming that that the uh, draws on the furthest right are the are the cards deepest down, which I believe is the case in MTGO, although it's hard to know. <laughs> you mean brainstorm? You brainstormed into what? What was the third it card? Was, it was I brainstormed into Black Lotus, Fetchland, and Balance. Uh-huh. And so I was able to balance to wipe the wipe his board, but I ended up at three. I could have brainstormed a turn earlier at six life. And you wouldn't have found balance. I don't believe so. Mm-hmm. So my patience in, in giving myself an extra turn allowed me to find the balance. But he exerted patience as well, which is that when you watch the replay, unbeknownst to me at the time, he was holding bolt and I was holding misstep. So I'm at two life once I fetch. He could have just bolted me and killed me uh, or tried mm-hmm. to kill me, but I would have been able to pay... pay I had Pyroblast and Misstep in hand. I could, and two mana still untapped, um, two Valks, and that would not have worked. And so what actually happened was we played Draw Go a few more turns. He was drawing dead. I was drawing some spells. I drew Preordain into Preordain and then bottom two cards and found Force. And so I had Force, Misstep, and all he has in hand is Bolt and Mox, Sapphire, and an Island. And I untap and I draw Jace, the Vrince Prodigy. And I play Jace Vrince Prodigy because if I un- pass to him and untap, I'm going to win. My mm-hmm. graveyard is completely stocked, and I will just completely win the match. But he draws preordain and preordains into into Cataxian probe and ancestral recall. So he probes <laughs> me. Presumably, he saw the ancestral. We don't know. I didn't know, but he probes, and then he finds ancestral. He ancestrals me, and of course, I have to misstep that, and leaving me with just force in hand. And then mm-hmm. he finally bolts me. So he exerted enormous patience to hold lightning bolt for like four or five turns. <laughs> Uh, to win the game, if he had done it in any other sequence. Now, had he bolted me and I misstepped it, his ancestral would have resolved. Who knows what would have happened then? If he 
does not kill my Jace, though. I untap with Jace, and then I presumably pull back ahead despite his ancestral. But it's hard mm-hmm. to know. Um, mm-hmm. So that was really, I think, superlative play on his part, to be so patient with that that bolt, to value that higher than anything else. <laughs> so that was really masterful play on his part. In game one, though, this is uh, this was actually, I think, a punt on my part. Um, by the way, there's lots of other things I could have done in game three, but I won't go into them. Because uh, I don't think it's too it's too granular to really analyze, and it's not really suitable for podcast form in any case. <laughs> but in game one, at the end of the game, so I played balance, and he forced it with no cards left in his hand, and he had I think a, a pyromancer, a pair of pyromancer tokens, and a snapcaster mage. So I think he had maybe six or seven damage, maybe another even another token. And I was at twelve life, and I actually just scooped because I thought he just was going to win. He did have a sylvan library, but he was at two life. But I shouldn't have scooped because my next card, Kevin, was Preordain, and the card underneath Preordain was Pyroclasm. Mm. So if he untaps Sylvan Libraries and doesn't see a Pyroblast or a Force or a Misstep, which is a big if (laughs) on all three of those, I I think he could hardcast Force, but I'm not sure at this point. I can untap, draw Preordain, Preordain into Clasm, Clasm, and we're back to square one with me at, I think, probably five or less life. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, in him having nothing, so I shouldn't have done that. That was I n- you normally try not to scoop early, but that was just a mistake. <laughs> that was a bad mistake. Um, the in some levels though, the Spurling match was way more interesting because that yeah. game three against Oath. I mean, he drew four Oaths in a row, which is absurd, and I had infinite <laughs> fragmentize. And the, the the decision trees were just enormously complex. But there, when watching the replay, there was one tiny thing I did. So basically what happened, the gist of the game, if you recall, is that I um, he generated two tokens. He had Library of Alexandria on the, on the, uh, on the, on the play. Yeah. And he generated two tokens for me, which I attacked him down to three or two life. Three life, I think it was. Yeah. And part of the way I did that was I Mystical Tutor for Time Walk, and I flashback Time Walk twice yep. with Jace Friends, a pair of Jace Friends prodigies. Well, you didn't flash it back twice. No, I did. <laughs> you cast it twice. <laughs> no, I cast it. Yeah, that's right. I cast it, and then I flashed it back the same... I, fl- I cast two time walks the exact same turn, and then right. I took two more turns after that to attack for six more damage from like nine to nine to three or something like that. Um, but here's the thing. There was one point, I think it was in turn time walk turn one, which is turn two in a row. I could have... I missed... I could have sacrificed my Jace Friends Prodigy in its entirety to flash back up Fragmentize to kill an Oath in play. If I had done that, I would have been able to, on the final time walk turn, dig and hold up Pyroblast. So I that, but I just the reason I wanted to didn't want to do this because I wanted to save. I didn't want my Pyro my Vrin's, uh, Jace Vrin's prodigy to perish. I didn't want mm-hmm. it to go away. But what I wasn't thinking about is it doesn't matter. He's a two life. This game is going to end immediately one way or the other. So right. there was no future value in like preserving the Jace. You know, I should have just let the Jace die. You know, sacrifice it because it had three loyalty. Flashback on the second turn, my second turn in a row. Flashback to fragmentize, then untap, and I could with my three lands in play, dig and hold up Pyroblast. I don't know that that would have won because he still DT'd for Yogmas Will, which I don't think I had an answer to. But it would have at least given given me a much better chance uh, of winning there. So I that was a mistake. Um, but to his credit, there's things he could have done differently, too. Mm-hmm. So I think, actually, the game three against Spurling is one of those enormously deep games where, like, a million different lines could have happened in different circumstances, and he just played exceptionally well. 
and around the cards I had and and eked out the win, even though I was like, I mean, it was really shocking. Like the advantage bar was like huge on my side yeah. for a while, and then he 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 snuck it out. But so I, I'm not, you know, obviously I'm disappointed that I'm not advancing to the the playoffs, especially because I thought I played a a deck that was really uh, suited for that pod. But um, at the end of the day, what really matters is that the audience enjoys get some great games of vintage, and I think I did my part to contribute to that. So it's a good perspective, and I think you're right, and uh, that very interesting stuff that demonstrates uh, interesting matchup dependence items, interesting um, lineup issues, as your match with Sperling demonstrates. All your fragmentizes versus his oath uh, created a really interesting dynamic, <laughs> and and Yogmoth's will batting cleanup. And similarly, my match against Randy, there was, I mean, how many games of VSL have we had when both players have zero cards in library? (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's a pretty bombastic conclusion. That was a pretty, that was a pretty amazing match you had. I mean, just the fact of, yeah, exactly, people drawing their whole deck (laughs) and overcoming a Remora. Again, that's that example of, like, you be seeming like you have a solid advantage, and then Randy uh, manages to skillfully navigate around it. So It was exciting. Yep. So let's move on and talk about this potential London Mulligan. To begin our discussion of the London Mulligan, we probably should simply start with the announcement. And I'm going to cherry pick a few quotes here from the announcement as posted by Wizards of the Coast, including an addendum that they posted clarifying specifically about serum powder. So they're talking about the London, the Mythic Championship 2, which is coming up in London in a few weeks in April. This is that's the replacement mo- for the Pro Tour, by the way. That's right. Mythic Championship, you can read as Pro Tour for those of you who have been following along. That event is a modern constructed format. And they say that they're going to be testing a new mulligan rule which we're calling them london mulligan uh, owing to the pattern of naming uh, new mulligan rules after the, the location in which they are debuted so let me quote a few things for mythic championship 2 in london we're going to be trying out a new mulligan rule that we've been playtesting internally for some time we believe the new mulligan rule smooths out opening hand decisions even more though it certainly has some implications for formats like modern the rule we'll be <laughs> testing in london is as such end quote when you mulligan for the nth time, you draw seven cards, then put n cards on the bottom of your library in any order. And then I'll skip some clarifications, but then Ian Duke added the following on 226. Since the announcement of the London Mulligan test, we've received a number of questions about the specific interaction with the card Serum Powder. As noted in the official rules for the mulligan, putting cards from your hand on the bottom of your library is the last step of completing the mulligan before deciding whether to keep or take another mulligan. At the point where Serum Powder checks whether you could mulligan, the number of cards in your hand will already have been reduced by one for each previous mulligan you'll have taken. So their initial announcement wasn't exactly clear on the order of operations. Ian addition clarifies that, which is going to be key for our discussion. Yes. Yes. So Kevin, there have been a number of conversations already ongoing about what this might mean for vintage, some fairly profound implications. We are going to discuss this in detail, but before we do, and so before we do, there's a number of preliminary matters we need to canvas. But big picture, as you described in your in the introduction of the episode, um, we want to really understand and dive into what does this mean for vintage. And there's three questions we hope to answer over the course of this segment. The first question is, 
Um, what is the effect of uh, the London Mulligan on particular archetypes and vintage? Specifically, how does it benefit or hurt them? Second, we want to understand how does the Mulligan rule change any dynamics between specific vintage matchups? And finally, what is the overall uh, likely impact of this rule on vintage as a whole, as a format? Uh, good, bad, indifferent, uh, neutral, um, you know, what is the overall likely impact going to be? So, but before, as I said, before we answer those questions, there's some preliminary matters I want to discuss. The first is, what is the purpose and function, or function, if you will, of the mulligan itself as a mechanic? Um, and more pointedly, what problem does the mulligan solve? And um, I want to suggest, Kevin, that different mulligan variants actually solve different problems, even though they can be kind of holistically described in sweeping terms and in broad strokes. So just tuck that away for the moment. Mm-hmm. Now, Wizards does not always describe its reasoning or its purposes when it announces rules changes. And for most of Magic history, um, it has not done that. So specifically, when Wizards would make ban and restricted list announcements or errata changes, uh, until more recent years, it would often not explain the reasoning behind those changes. And um, what I want to do is I want to go... So when it doesn't explain the reasoning, you may recall, Kevin, that when the Flame Fusillade uh, errata was made, uh, the, the Time Vault errata was made in the context of the Flame Fusillade combo, uh, that's actually the turning point in which Wizards committed henceforth to uh, explaining and publicly announcing its changes, as opposed to incidentally or occasionally. Um, and similarly, uh, ban and restricted list announcements are now consistently accompanied by increasingly long explanations, as opposed mm-hmm. to just DCI announcements with often no explanation or um, inconsistent explanations provided. Um, I believe that a similar thing is true of mulligans. That is, the more recent in more recent years, in the last couple of years, Wizards has been clear about what the purposes of the mulligans mulligan is, and what and, the, and in this context, and specifically with the proposed London rule, they have provided a purpose for it. And then, as you surfaced, there's an article from Sam Stoddard, which was published a few years ago, that actually suggested this possible mulligan with again an explanation. But what I want to do before we get to that explanation, and before we begin our deep dive into the application of this possible mulligan rule for vintage, or proposed mulligan rule for vintage, I want to do a retrospective look at the uh, previous iterations of mulligan rules, okay? Sure, and I want to, And I also want to try and infer what the function and purpose of those mulligan rules are. So, to begin with, let's just start at the very beginning, which is first Mm -hmm. edition, the alpha rulebook. (laughs) The alpha rulebook did not provide for any mulligans whatsoever. <laughs> so if you're playing under alpha rules, you either did not use a mulligan at all, or you had a house rule that allowed players to um, allowed players to mulligan under specific circumstances. There's an article from Mark Rosewater in 2004 in which he said that in the early days of the game, which I presume to mean before the Duelist Convocation uh, sanctioned tournaments, um, that's what he means by that. He he describes six different mulligan rules. He rem- he um, describes one in which you could mulligan once per game for any reason. Presumably, I mean, I think he means before you begin the game, <laughs> not just like randomly, like any point <laughs> during a game. <laughs> also, um, presumably to seven cards. 
Yes. Mulligan, second, mulligan if you have no land. Third, mulligan if you have one land or no land. Uh, fourth, mulligan if you have no land or all land. <laughs> uh, fifth, mulligan if your opponent mulligans. Oh, and yeah. sixth, every combination of any of the above. Now, the introduction of mulligans to magic actually as, as a, an official rule does not come with third edition or first edition. It actually comes with the June 13th, 1994 floor rules which was also announced in the Duelist number 2 magazine. And it so it's it was not Kevin part of a comprehensive rules change, you know, like LIFO or the stack or timing or anything like that. Rather, mm-hmm. it was a floor rules announcement. Um so on Ju- on June 13th, 1994, they introduced the no land all land mulligan. And that mulligan existed for a number of years for uh, basically 3 straight years. But Kevin, what I want to suggest is that, you know, so I just canvassed what Mark Rosewater described as the mulligan variants in the early games. Um, what is the function or purpose of the mulligan? And I want to suggest that the function or purpose of the mulligan, broadly speaking, is to reduce variance. Variance is a very important and pivotal part of magic. Now, some people are unhappy about variance. They get upset about variance. They feel like they got unlucky and they lost because they got unlucky. But I actually believe that there is more room for skill in this is a much it's a different argument, but I believe that variance actually creates more skill than it takes away. That is, it creates more possibilities for deck construction and lines of play than would be possible if you played a, a magic format that didn't have variance, a game of magic that didn't have variance. Um, and I firmly believe that. But that aside, everything in magic is either variance enhancing or variance reducing, not everything, but a number of aspects of the game. <laughs> Are enhancing or reducing. So the notion that you can play with only minim- a minimum of 60 cards in constructed magic and a maximum of four of any individual card are two interactive rules that increase variance. So just to make this clear, if the starting deck size could be three cards or seven cards, if you draw seven cards, then you could effectively make games completely deterministic, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that there's a 60 card minimum means that you can't. And now, you need more than a 60-card minimum because you could actually make games deterministic, even with 60 cards, because if they were 60 of all the same card, like 60 Mishra's Factories, (laughs) then the format could be entirely deterministic. But um, you, the cap on four individual cards, basic land accepted, interacts to make sure that there is sufficient variance in the game. Now, there are a number of things that work to reduce variance. Cantrips, draw spells, but structurally, in terms of the design of the game, one of the critical forces to reduce variance is the mulligan. And another force that is, exists to reduce m- variance is the best two of three match rule. Magic doesn't necessarily have to be on a best two of three match rule, as Arena demonstrates. <laughs> but, but using the best two of three is a mechanism that is designed to reduce variance and presumably to increase fairness and equity as a result, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another mechanism that reduces variance is the sideboard. The sideboard allows, in some sense, it allows players to um, attack narrow strategies with silver bullets and thereby um, not feel like they're getting blown out by just by randomly be- facing an opponent that's strategically advantaged against them. You know, they, they can reduce the kind of luck of the draw, so to speak, in terms of who they face by having cards that can be useful in that particular matchup. Now, of course, sideboards increase variance in other ways, but it certainly increases the it reduces the variance of having facing a particular kind of matchup in a certain way it interacts with your strategy. So um, 
it's clear to me, just by inference, that the no land, all land mulligan specifically reduces a particular kind of variance, not variance writ large, but specifically a, a, a really narrow, narrowly tailored concern that players will not have the resources they need to make plays to cast spells or interact with the opponent during the course of the game, right? Is that, mm-hmm. do you agree with that? Yep. Um, now, this particular rule, which, as I said, was instituted on June 13th, 1994, had a number of problems. Kevin, would you like to describe what some of those problems were? <laughs> <laughs> well, for one, there are lands in Magic, uh, starting in the Arabian Nights, that don't produce mana. Yep. <laughs> That's one big one. And also, lands are not a requirement of deck build, is another problem. A more modern one, but yes. Well, uh, yeah, well, I guess I mean, you could say it's Alpha. You could, yeah, it existed in Alpha. Yeah. Right. True. Any mulligan rule that did not also come together with a deck construction limiter like the 64 or the, you know, 4-4 deck construction limiter inherently runs afoul of Moxon, right, by definition. Yeah. Which is, it has been relevant in different contexts and in different decks over the history of Magic and is still relevant in Vintage and other formats due to decks like Belcher at all. Right. And there wasn't just a problem with no land, but also all land. You know, some decks, um, I mean, that's that's a, also a reasonable... so. The, the all-land mulligan, presumably, is to allow players to have a, a, a mixture of uh, of spells, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you want a mixture of cards, rather. You want spells and mana. So you don't mm-hmm. want people... So, so in some sense, it also corrects for the problem of uh, mana flooding. But only... Yeah, and only in extreme case. Mm-hmm. Now, there were a couple of other problems. In addition to the problem that like cards like Maze of Ith or Strip Mine counted, um, there were, around 1997 in particular... Uh, decks like the Prosperity deck that began to emerge that only needed a very small number of lands, like eight lands, Mm -hmm. and they would play the maximum amount of artifact acceleration, including four mana crypt and four mana vault. And all they would want to do is play Black Vise and cast Prosperity. And like many of the kind of big mana combo decks, they really bent their mana curve down, and allowing the no-land rule gave them essentially free strategic mulligans, even when they didn't necessarily need that. So I think that was a less, that was probably less of an impetus, but it might still have been a consideration. Um, so my reading is the, the all land, no land mulligan is specifically designed to reduce variance as all mulligans are, but a particular kind of variance, mm-hmm. a, a variance in which people have an, an, an inappropriate mixture of spells and lands. That is the resources and the spells people play. And so, relatedly, it inherently takes some assumptions about what is n- standard deck construction. Exactly. It makes yep. assumptions about that. Yeah. Which leads to the Paris Mulligan, which arises with, uh, was first implemented with Pro Tour Paris in 1997. And that's how it acquired the, uh, the name of Paris, the appellation Paris Mulligan. Now, what it allowed players to do is to mulligan for any reason whatsoever, except you draw one fewer card. Whereas in the previous iterations, you mulligan back to seven. So uh, this, again, what problem is it designed to solve? I think it's designed to, um, again, reduce variance, but it does so in a way that is much broader and allows players to mulligan um, not just because of an improper ratio of lands and spells, but for any reason whatsoever, including uh, strategic reasons, uh, because um, you know they have, might have one land or they have six lands. Kevin, any other inferences you think can be drawn from the shift to that that rule? I would simply posit that it is that there, there's an implicit measurement of the value of a single magic card, and yes, 
and we have, I think, collectively identified that mulligans to seven may be too generous, with some exceptions like multiplayer formats and that kind of thing. And mulligans to six might be too punishing. And as such, it's a quest to find another incremental gift, (laughs) so to speak, to give to the mulliganer that is less than the value of a single magic card, but more than nothing. That's right. I mean, think about first edition rules with respect to the play draw rule. Under alpha rules, the player on the play drew a card on their first turn. Right. Because there was nothing specifying that you don't. But over time, we discovered that being on the play is such a huge advantage that it justifies actually taking away that additional card. But that's the trade-off that the Paris Mulligan presents. And what's weird about it is it's it's not... Um, it's a trade-off, but it's not necessarily directly correlated with each other, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're allowing you're you're reducing the hand size by one for each mulligan, but it's kind of like um, it's a different thing. It's like uh, it's like you're going to dinner and you decide you're going to skip the dessert, but instead someone gives you a uh, someone gives you like a, a hand tool or something, you know, which is useful <laughs> for some completely different purpose, right? It's like <laughs> you know what I mean. It's like they're different. They play different roles. They're different functions. Right. Um, now, there is a relationship in this case, but it is it is different. Um, so, the Paris Mulligan solved the problem, in my opinion, of um, the all-land, no-land Mulligan being inadequate to uh, to certain kinds of variants that had arisen. They, they decided that a broader rule was needed, but they needed an offsetting cost, and, and they landed on that, right? Mm-hmm. Now, pr- uh, Patrick Chapin apparently had proposed some years later that a way to kind of balance, better balance the cost of losing a card was to allow a player who mulligan to scry, right? And this became known as the Vancouver mulligan because it was first implemented at Pro Tour Origins, which was held in Vancouver, Canada in 2015. So this allowed players to effectively do the Paris mulligan, but not feel quite so behind in terms of the loss of card advantage, because they got a little bit of virtual card advantage, right, Kevin? Yeah, and this I think really begins the the march in earnest toward reducing non-game. Granted, you've already addressed the, the various mulligans to seven that were that had other implications, but now that we've got the the Paris mulligan and we had been using it for a while, the thing we're trying to correct for here becomes more specific. And, and let's be really clear on our terms, mm-hmm. because I, I I kind of cringe when I hear non-games, because yeah. I think people have different meanings of that. Even if we can agree on a technical definition, what people actually envision in their mind when they think about what that means can often be very, very widely divergent or different. So, yeah. when what by non-games, what I interpret it to mean, and specifically mean, is that players have more opportunities to interact, specifically to play spells of their own, uh, or to play cards that interact with what the opponent is trying to do. In other words, to advance your own game plan in some modest way, or to play cards that disrupt your opponent's advancement of their game plan. Is that what you mean as well? Is that how you interpret it, or somewhat differently? Well, I think that's a, that is a very reasonable take, but I was expecting you to utilize your more, more sweeping uh, method that you've used in the past which is meaningful choice right yes it doesn't even necessarily have to be advancing your own game state because that makes some implications about the matchup right and and the decks involved i would abstract it further out to just be a game where you have meaningful choice in a game where you have a handful of three mana spells and you only draw two lands 
you get to play two cards that game, ostensibly the two lands, and then not make any choices. And even though you've played two cards, those weren't meaningful choices, right? Fair so enough. I, I genuinely prefer your moniker in this case. That's that's totally fair. I, I just get sometimes annoyed when people describe games where there is meaningful choice as being non-games. Hmm. So, you know, where an opponent just plays something and uh, you still have an opportunity to play spells, but um, those spells aren't necessarily good enough to overcome an opponent's, uh, let's say, their initial salvo. Mm-hmm. I still feel I'm not sure that the meaningful choice framework actually applies because nothing let's say for example that an opponent just to make a very concrete example an opponent goes uh, on turn 1 orchard land uh, orchard mocks oath oath of druids mm-hmm. and uh you you actually don't have a, a way to counter it or remove the oath on turn 1 but you do have spells you can play so let's say you can play like I don't know a uh, black lotus monastery mentor and uh, and also a land and a preordain. Mm-hmm. You've made plays, but they aren't necessarily meaningful in the sense that they they shape the outcome of the game. Uh, so the the you know the first thing I described, players, I would not describe that as a non-game in the sense that the mm-hmm. um, the this, this the mentor player has had an opportunity to actually de- cast spells to advance their game plan, um, but they they aren't able to actually sufficiently overcome the opponent's. Uh, 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 their offense. So I think um, I think that the the, the you're right that w- the the meaningful choice framework may be more sweeping, but I actually think it's not quite what I was looking for. And when I was saying describing well, that, clearly this area involves some amount of subjectivity, and it's it's unavoidable. I would posit that the, there's a spectrum on which the game you described speaks to just bad matchups. It's possible yes. that. Your deck selection has, yeah, yeah, has put you in a position such that nothing you could do in the early turn is particularly meaningful. Um, it's maybe you've got a a, Je- a a Jeskai deck that has no disenchants, right? For example, right. there's no way to remove an oath in game one. Right, it's very difficult. Even if you're f- uh, furthering your ostensible game plan, which Lotus Mentor really is, it that's that could also just speak to a bad matchup. So. We don't need so to belabor you, the point. Would you would you consider that a non-game though? The game I no, just described. No, I would not consider that a non-game. A non-game, I, I agree. yeah. Yeah, a non-game for me is one where you you really didn't even have the choice to to cast any spells, right? Yes. And it's possible to have a game that features many game actions and is still a non-game. A game yes. of limited, for example, when you don't hit your third land drop until turn four. Yeah, it might be two or three turns before you die, and you might even cast two or three creatures in the mean, in the meantime. But you don't actually have any meaningful way to come back in the average game of limited where there's no balance or time walk or ancestral recall, right? You're just right. playing your gray ogre into their four, four, and it's just going to take a little while for you to have lost. <laughs> that's right. what but I would consider to be been decided. Yeah, yeah. That's a non game that, that had some choices, but then right. you really have to put a lot of weight on the term meaningful, <laughs> right? Right. You get to choose which two to three drop you played on turn three, but either one of them was going to lose you the game, right? That's a choice that wasn't meaningful. So I feel like, again, we don't need to belabor this, but I do feel like the meaningful choice framework, if you lean on it real hard and put and put emphasis on both terms, uh, it really does cover all the bases. Okay. Well, I think we agree on what a non-game is um, and agree on what a game is in yeah. that context. Um, but I think we maybe disagree. About, I mean, other people can disagree with our definition, um, but we, we all are in accord that the Paris Mulligan, sorry, the Vancouver Mulligan uh, is designed to reduce the number of non-games. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Which brings us to Mythic Championship London 2019. Um, 
I think this the problem this solves again. Yes, is it variance reducing? I first of all, but but I think it solves other problems um, besides. But first of all, before we describe what those <laughs> problems are, I just want to say that the degree of variance reduction that this mulligan introduces, the the kind of delta of variance reduction between Paris uh, between the uh, uh, the the nineteen ninety four floor rules in Paris and the mm-hmm. Paris mulligan and the, and the Vancouver, those deltas are tiny compared to the gulf between the London mulligan proposed mulligan rule and all others in terms of possible re- variance reduction. Mm-hmm. That the degree to which it v- reduces variance outstrips all others by several orders of magnitude. Do you agree with that? I think so. I think that's correct. And I think it's measurably correct based on the statistics that have been done by yes. uh, by many folks already. Which we will get to. We will yeah, we will throw some statistics at you, but yeah. let's hold off on that. <laughs> well, and we, yeah, we don't want to make this a pure numbers show, but that's a, a key part of the, the analysis. So, so I just want to say, so I think we're in agreement this is a, a variance-reducing uh, mulligan rule, but it also is one that vastly outstrips uh, the previous iterations. Now, in addition to just reducing variance and specifically um, number and, and specifically reducing non-games and reducing the uh, chances of an imbalance of hand of, of land, uh, let's say reducing the imbalance admixture of, of spells to, to, to mana, what other purposes do you see this solving? Like what another way of, of putting it is what is the problem with the previous Mulligan rules that this is attempting to, to address? Well, I the in addition to what you said, I would say that this is simply an enhancement to the scry mulligan that front loads the choice of the scry into the mulligan decision itself, which is just a way to present the player with more information to make a more informed mulligan decision. And what I really think it does and again, again this is aside from other impacts this is really, I think, targeted at reducing the number of mulligans to five, specifically, and below. Because what it means is your first mulligan to six has significantly more information than it does today with the scry. And as such, some, some very rudimentary examples like, you know, where today your first six cards might have one land, and if that's a land on top, then you've got kind of an agonizing choice based on your deck construction. Oh as yeah, to whether because or not you have to make lander. the decision before yeah. you scry. Got it. The, I was trying so to figure this, out why you were. I was trying to figure out why you were saying that the uh, the mulligan to six under the London rule has so much more information yeah. than the mulligan to six under the Vancouver rule. But that that makes sense. I mean, certainly yeah, so, the, it's indisputable that, <laughs> that a mulligan to five uh, under the London rule has a lot more information than a mulligan to five on the Vancouver well, it, rule, and it goes up from there. Yeah. Yeah. So but basically, I what I, sh- why it's six, what I should say true. is that this is discouraging. It's 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 rapidly discouraging mulligans beyond the first. You get much more information on a mulligan to six because you're front loading the one card. You get w- way more information on a mulligan to five because you're front loading two cards. Right? It goes up exponentially from there. And are you, are you suggesting then this should reduce the number of mulligans that happen? It should reduce the number of mulligans beyond six. You should see. Yeah, and it, I would say this will lead to an increase in mulligans over the the Vancouver from mulligan from seven to six. From seven but to it six, will reduce below six. It will it will create a pole of mulligans at six that is even higher than as a proportion of total mulligans. There will be more mulligans to six and fewer than any other number, or fewer to any other number. That is an implication I had not uh, drawn out. So that's yeah. I think a very insightful uh, inference, and I think there's reasons to think that's true. Interesting. And, and I, I genuinely think that that's one of the goals. I think it actually very narrowly targeted at that goal 
Yes, making six better. (laughs) Making six better is good because we all know that the mulligans fall off rapidly in terms of your expected win, uh, the the fewer cards you have. There are ways of tailoring that possibly better, though, right? I mean, they could have said, they could have capped, they could have said you could mulligan to six, but then no further. But then the problem with that is that you if the six is a high variance, you're, you're stuck, right? You're stuck. So right. there's no so you kind of have to keep it rolling uh, throughout, going further. Yeah, uh, I and think I, it's a really, I don't think there's a, re, a compelling reason to do what you've described. But you're right; that is one method they could use. Right. Um, any other problems that you see? So I mean, you see this solving. I think you're absolutely right. I think this is trying to make your hand of six better, so that people yeah. will stop mulliganing further and therefore create more games. So, yeah. so it's interesting how the kind of, um, as the game matures, the, uh, understanding of how to reduce variance to increase more games, uh, evolves with it. Mm, right. That's a very good the- point. And I think you observed earlier about kind of the implications of the all land, no land mulligans and what they meant for deck construction and some of their implied purpose. I think this mulligan is actually something of a return to that philosophy because it makes some assumptions about what to your what you just said what makes a good and keepable hand in the average deck and this i think puts emphasis on combinations of cards distributions slash combinations of cards this mulligan favors putting together combinations of cards yes i i want to get to that but let's hold off on that particular point well, because that and, opens a, another vast <laughs> vista yeah, for discussion and I, I know that it does i don't we'll mean to. to say this promotes combo decks that is not what i'm saying i'm saying this yes. promotes combinations and that combination could be two lands and a whole bunch of two mana cost creatures right it's not about yes. power or interaction it's just about your deck is designed to assemble certain combinations and if your deck is like a, a burn deck where you want exactly one mountain and then six one mana burn cards, right? Your deck is designed to assemble that combination and this promotes any and all interactions of cards. Yes. Um, before we turn to Vintage, and we're almost there, um, <laughs> I want you to excerpt Sam Stoddard's quote from his 2015 article on the purpose of, of this mulligan, which was floated back then. So are you talking about mulligans in general or the 7-7? Seven, seven, I'm sorry, the, the, seven, the shuffle seven, back. Seven. Yeah, I'll yeah. say. So, so in the 2015 article where Sam describes a handful of different mulligan techniques, he specifically addresses this mulligan, which at the time was called 777, referring to how many cards you look at, and then shuffle X back. This is his description. This was attempting to do something similar to the scry mulligan we used at Pro Tour Origins, but in a way that was more powerful. Basically, each time you mulligan, you drop to seven, you get rid of cards you can't use, down to the appropriate smaller hand size, thereby increasing the chances you'll have a reasonable hand. Those are his words. Now there's two uh, commentaries. What we like. This seemed pretty close to the right power level for limited, but has some problems. You generally end up shuffling your most expensive card back. But if it wasn't obvious, then the decision on which to shuffle back was pretty hard, and it made it take a lot longer than a regular mulligan. What we didn't like, this mulligan was way too strong in constructed and encouraged (laughs) big changes in deck building. Perhaps the most notable thing was in modern and eternal formats where sideboard hate got a lot stronger since you could shuffle extra copies back in your deck. Similarly, combo decks got a huge advantage since they could mulligan away possibly useless cards. In one of our biggest rules violations for changing the mulligan rule, it clearly changed the parameters for deck building and would have a profound impact on how older formats played out. I think that's prescient, mm-hmm. and I think that's what we're going to spend some time on. And before mm-hmm. we move to that, but by the way, it is useful that they have this kind of backward. It's kind of like back to the future analysis <laughs> of this that we can we can go back and look at even before this became an operational rule. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to point out one other thing in the same article. 
Sam canvassed the what he called the six, seven six six five five mulligan possibility, which I think is actually really interesting. It is. Um, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to say about that, but it strikes me before you do that there are you know despite the fact that there have only been basically four functional rules changes over the twenty six years of Magic, there is an infinite set of possibilities for mulligan rules. Right. And the seven six six five five is an interesting one. I, I I wouldn't necessarily say it's very bad to play in that universe, but um, it does have some. I think it targets different things as we've been discussing yes. here, and we don't need to elaborate on this because we've got a whole other rules uh, to well, think, analyze. But I think what it targets is actually one of the problems that you announced, which is the delta between six and five, you yeah. know, the third mulligan, and I think yeah. this actually solves that pretty well because you go from six to six, yeah, as opposed to which, six to five. Which it's it's hard to it'd be hard to quantify how many mulligans to six there were because you had two two swings at it. But um, you're right. The 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 straightforward result here is that players would keep hands of six or more cards far more often. Yeah, and another just one other thing. I think you're right that the uh, seven 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 shuffle x back rule um, will move incline people to not mulligan from six to five. It'll because the six will be better overall. Mm-hmm. But it does mean in some handful of cases, the mulligans can take up a lot more time. Absolutely. And, and I do that, think it's a, a, a important concern about this. Regardless of deck construction or even game outcome, that's right. this front loads a lot more decision-making and accordingly skill, I think, to the pregame procedure. Right. All right, we're going to turn to the math, and then we're going to talk about some vintage archetypes next. So, Kevin, there have been a number of analysts all over the web who've been looking at the implications of this. What are some of the findings in terms of mathematical analysis? We've got analysis for things like specific cards going uh, looking for a four of. Vintage, obviously, the, the topic of conversation immediately went to dredge and looking for Bazaar of Baghdad. So that's one strong area of analysis. Then we've got the, the inverse, I guess, which is mulliganing to a hate card. Like if you're trying to fall in the ley line to fight dredge, that's the inverse of that. But then there's things like looking for specific combos. 8 of card A, 8 of card B, that kind of thing, and looking for just generally keepable hands, like just high quality, you know, better than average hands, that, the, the kind of hands you would want to keep because they are playable, uh, as opposed to just non-hands, right? Things you have to mulligan because they have no mana. So those are some of the broad categories I've been studying, and there's been a lot of work online, as you said, in most of those arenas. What are some of the highlights in terms of conclusions that people have drawn? Well, the overarching conclusion, I would say, in highlight is that everything gets better. <laughs> so, you know, the rising tide lifts all ships. and But it favors decks that are looking for specific individual cards, like Dredge, and or specific combinations of cards, like a, a two-card kind of combo deck. Those kind of things are enabled more so. Granted, it is also um, easier to find an individual hate card, a la Leyline. But it's widely understood that the decks that employ Leyline as a hate card frequently are still disadvantaged by, by as aggressively mulliganing to that card as opposed to a deck like Dread. And what that means is that if all things being equal, you're just as likely to find Leyline as Dredge is to find Bazaar. They have an advantage because they are a deck that has a, a lower fail rate for the rest of their strategy than you do. 
And what that means is when you're playing just guy, for example, and you've got ley lines in your board, you even if you find the ley line, your deck is worse for having to aggressively mold to it than the dredge deck is. They can, for example, have they're more likely to find a land and a nature's claim than you are to find ley line and like a, a land and a fluster storm when, when their deck is more streamlined than yours, that kind of thing. So it's very interesting interaction inter- interacting predictions here. The, the long and the short of it is this does favor decks that have more narrow requirements in terms of individual or pairs of cards. And with the caveat that decks that require a critical mass of cards, like frequently storm decks, um, though they aren't as benefited as something like dredge because this doesn't really, this doesn't very actively increase the total number of cards you have access to. So there's a lot in there to unpack. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think that I have a, a principle in mind that, accurately describes the effects of the effect of the card mm-hmm. that we can then apply to specific decks but before i introduce that principle i want to ask you a, another mathematical question yeah so um just running the math on a, a one of sorry a, a, on a card that you play as a four of mm-hmm. what are the odds with this mulligan rule that you can find that card now roughly without yeah. the aid of a serum powder just by mulliganing so you could be bizarre baghdad or ley line avoid what are the right. odds straight up that you'll find that card so with the existing mulligan, that is the Vancouver mulligan, the odds are approximately, if you're willing to go all the way down to one card, the odds are 86.6% that you will find that one four of in the, the, the current state. With the proposed Melundin mulligan, that number rises significantly to 97.2. Again, if you're willing to go all the way down to mulligan to one, you get a significant increase of nine percentage points approximately. Which is more than serum powders get you. That's right. The difference. Serum, serum powders currently get you from about 86.6 to 94%. They get you about half of the way, a little more than half of the way to that number in the new rule. So basically, List London Mulligan is better than serum powder. Serum powder times four. Time, so it's better than four serum powders. If By a you, big margin, yeah. Right. Because, it gets you, it gets you, because you don't uh, have to spend the card right. in your deck. Well, it, it's better for a number of reasons, but just pure percentage-wise, it gets you to bizarre about three percentage points more often, 94 versus 97%. If you add powders onto that, then the number goes quite high. It gets up It gets up to 99%. And, that's and, incredible. Yeah. And So that's good to know. Well, so, so it, it raises some interesting deck-building questions, right? Would, you, would a dredge deck really have one or the other? But we can go on yeah. to that. I have a few more, one more math question for you. Um, vintage is the only format with the restricted list. What are the odds of finding one card, a restricted <laughs> card? Do you have a rough idea of that? If you were to oh, mulligan to one. That's interesting. I don't think I've actually seen anyone do that kind of analysis, but I can do it relatively quickly thanks to just uh, our old friend, the hypergeometric calculator. So if you have, um, if you have one Lotus in your deck, and you want one of them in your hand, and then you have, and then you have fifty nine other cards, right? And you don't need any of those in your hand. So a hand of seven, the chances of you finding that one card is eleven point seven percent. And at six cards, it goes down to ten, and then it goes down to uh, eight point three. It's easy to analyze the London Mulligan as com- as opposed to uh, prior Mulligans, where the number just diminishes every time. Because with the Mul- London Mulligan, your odds of it's, finding it's the first. The yeah, first calculation. Odds of finding it's that 11. one of are eleven point seven percent every time. It's eleven with replacement. That's right. So <laughs> the reason I I, I asked that question is because suppose Bizarre Baghdad is restricted. Obviously, restriction as a mechanism has a dramatically different effect. Um, if you only need one card to get things started, you know. 
That's really interesting. So if this process, and we're jumping to a potential prediction here, but if this process were to result in a Bazaar of Baghdad deck being problematic in the metagame such that it required restriction, it could be that restricting either Bazaar or Serum Powder independently weren't, uh, aren't sufficient. That's right. <laughs> there's a, there's a possible future. Because even if you restrict future. Powder and Bazaar, you still have a better than whatever percent chance of finding it. So, Certainly with Bazaar. I have, I have to believe that if both are restricted, then, then the deck would no longer be yes. viable. But, but what if Serum Powder isn't? Because then you could just mulligan into Serum Powder. <laughs> you know, anyway. <laughs> right. Interesting. So that's a discussion for another day when we have the specific math, but I did want to ask that. So now let's pivot to specific archetypes, and we've already begun to tease out what this might mean for Dredge. Um, it seems to me that it's just it just shoots down the number of mulligans to oblivion to virtually nil. Uh, that's going to happen far, far less frequently. Yeah. Right now it happens at a rate of 6%. That's going to take it down to under 1% um, just off the, off the bat, which seems to me to be a huge advantage for Dredge in terms of winning tournaments over the course of a day. Right. If Winning matches. It, so if the percentages play out in real life as we expect them to, currently you're basically sitting at 94% to find Bizarre, assuming you're, again, willing to go only to Bizarre above all else. That number effectively goes up to 99%. And, That's why I said it goes from 6% failure to under 1%. Right. And what that means is, for example, we've we've used the example of champs before, right? Let's say you're playing in a 10-round tournament and you've got three yep. you know, matches per round ostensibly, then you're playing 30 games, right? So 94% of 30 games is 28.2. That suggests that in those 30 games, you're going to mulligan to oblivion two times, right? Yes. As opposed to... Yeah. And so, <laughs> ostensibly, in the in the London Mulligan, you're going to Mulligan of those thirty games. You're going to Mulligan less than a third of a game. Twenty nine point seven, ostensibly, is how many games you're going to find uh, bizarre inside of your aggressive Mulligan. That is a huge yeah. uptick in a deck's efficacy on average over Especially a large tournament. Especially when margins and vintage are so tight to begin with. It is. Mm-hmm. Mm. So and that so doesn't clearly, account for. So, sorry, Steve, I, but. It's important to say, and we're going to probably get to this in more detail, but that doesn't account for the increased quality of the average hand along the way. Not only are yeah. you finding Bizarre more often, but the other cards with Bizarre are also getting better as a result of right. this mulligan. You'll have more Force of Will, more Misstep, etc. You'll have more, more Land Nature's Claim. Dredgers, yeah, yeah Land Nature's Claim. Um, so we're, right now we're under the first question we asked with the beginning, which is, what is the effect of this proposed rule on possible vintage archetypes? We, the second question is going to be, what about the dynamics between matches? We'll get to that next. But I, I alluded to a principle that I think I've derived, and I want to articulate what I think that principle is now. So think, Kevin, and our audience, just think about different kinds of decks in vintage. There's a kind of continuum, right? There are decks that are basically essentially homogenous, like Landstill. They still mm-hmm. have a mixture of things, but they're largely homogenous. Then you have decks where like the value of one card, like Bazaar, just vastly outstrips everything else in Dredge. So that's one dimension in which to evaluate this. It strikes me that it's this mulligan is far more valuable for the deck that's looking for one thing than deck that's looking for a homogeneous uh, set of cards. And I think from that insight, we can actually derive a principle. And it's that the, the mulligan, this proposed mulligan rule has decreasing utility for decks along that spectrum, and specifically decks that go from one-card combos to two-card combos to three-card combos to so on. So let me give you some specific meat on this on this imaginary line chart graph, Kevin. Mm-hmm. So 
So one car combo is bizarre. You just need bizarre and you can go off. Now, obviously, it's not that's a simplification. You need dredgers and so on and so forth. But for the most part, all you're doing is just finding the, the, the bizarre because you, by design, have a sufficient density of dredgers that you should, with a high probability, have one. And by the way, this mulligan rule probably means you can probably go down to just eight dredgers as opposed to nine, um, possibly. So now let's turn to two-card combos. There are lots of two-card combos in Magic, Kevin. Um, there's Channel Fireball, there's Illusionary Mask and Phyrexian Dreadnought, um, mm-hmm. there's Oath of Druids and Forbidden Orchard. In Contemporary Vintage, there is Two-Card Monty, which actually has two two-card mon- uh, combos with Leyline of the Void and Helm of Obedience. Um, and it also has it also has a Painter Servant and Grindstone. But another two-card combo that's used in Dredge sideboard sometimes is, of course, Dark Depths and Thespian Stage. Mm. So I think that, that this uh, mulligan rule helps those two-card combos because it increases the odds that you will find either both combo pieces or one of the two combo pieces and something else that can fetch the second one. Um, so I think it helps two-card combos. Not as much as it helps one-card combos, but it helps two-card combos from the current set of the current mulligan rule, the Vancouver rule. Mm-hmm. Now, when you get to three-card combos, again, I think it helps three-card combos more than it helps homogenous decks, but not as much as it helps two-card combos and one-card combos. So a three-card, what is a three-card combo? A three-card combo might be... Dragon? World, dragon combo, right. Where you need Bazaar, you need the World Gorger Dragon, and you need an Animate Dead Effect. Yeah. Or it could be... Um, uh, illusions donate plus pyroblast, huh. or it could be like uh, panda burst. Right, there are all kinds of three card combos. Mm-hmm. Um, where I think this becomes less helpful is not just homogenous decks, but decks that, that are like the perfect storm, where they're not looking for a particular card or even a combination of cards. They're looking for a mixture of mana, ex- including acceleration, like dark rituals and artifact accelerants. And they're looking for for bombs, but they're also looking for disruption. So that gets closer to a three card combo when you really are talking about like four different things. It doesn't matter whether it's force or duress for the disruptions disruption spot. You need one or the other, right. right? Or disruptive defense is a good grid. Example. Doomsday is a really interesting case because Doomsday appears to be a one card combo, but it's really not. Totally, you have to protect it and you have to accelerate it out, or you have to have time to be able to deploy mana to cast it. Right, so you want you want Doomsday Ritual Thought Seize or Doomsday Ritual <laughs> Flusterstorm, or you want you know the maybe it's a slower game. You want Doomsday and Top and Thought Seize, right? Right, and Paradoxical Outcome is is kind of similar. Like you know, you could just combo out if you had Mana Crypt, Mox, Mox, PO. But what you really you're not looking for any particular Mox right. and PO. You're looking for just a, enough of artifacts that you can play it quickly and the PO, right? Yeah. I actually think that outcome is is one of the, one of the sort of combo decks in the family the large family of combo decks that's least helped by this mulligan, right? Well, well, that's because, what my principle suggests. I don't yeah. know what we can call my principle if you want to call it like um, the the combo the combo principle for diminishing returns. But the mulligan clearly helps decks that have the fewer the combo pieces that you need, mm-hmm. and the less homogenous your deck is in that regard. The the more um, of a boost this this mulligan provides yep yep exactly and i also and i don't know if this is the time to really tease it out but i i really think that this deck i'm sorry this mulligan creates incredibly interesting and skill testing decisions as pertains to non-combo decks when your focus is interaction because when you're mulliganing to six or five and you're evaluating seven cards in many cases with common control decks like jeskai you're going to be faced with 
just incredibly skill testing decisions about which cards are the ones that you want to keep. You know, yeah. if you've got a hand with Jeskai that has two lands and then five interactive cards, and you've got to put one at the bottom, you're basically making a, a choice right then about what how you expect this game to go. Which card matters? Yeah, yeah which of these cards is going to matter this game? You're already doing that to some degree today with the but scry, but not to the same degree. But yeah. not to the same degree, correct? Yeah, this, and that's going to slow down matches even further. It will because people have to not only. I mean, th- that's. I think you're absolutely right when you said that it front loads the scry, mm-hmm. but you by front loading multiple scries, th- it, it increases the complexity. I think I'm saying this correctly, really exponentially, because you yep. have to not only consider like in an individual case, do I bottom this card and do I bottom this card, but you have to consider the possible interactions of those two cards yes, with precisely. everything else in your hand. Precisely. Yeah. When you're currently when you're evaluating a mulligan to five, you're just evaluating that hand on its merits, those five cards, and you're considering, especially again with a deck like Jeskai, does this have the baseline resources for me to contribute and interact in this game? Right? Does it have mana sources and something that's relevant interaction in the early in the early uh, stages of the game? When you are current, you're doing the same process, but you're holding the next set two cards in your library, so you're looking at seven. You're it, sh- it shifts from does this have the basics to interact to what is my game plan, right? Yes. Now, granted, you should understand your game plan in the first example. Don't get me wrong. You understand how you, how your cards interact. But when you have seven cards, you're much closer to choosing a game plan than you are just evaluating if you have one, <laughs> right? And there's a Agreed. huge difference there. And as you put it, the difference between scrying one and scrying two is enormous. It's enormous. And yes. you're not just scrying. Let alone three. Right. Imagine it's, if you're if you're it's mulliganing. It's like deciding what to discard with Necropotence after you've gorged <laughs> for like 13 cards. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Because you have to consider how all the cards you're discarding intera- may interact. Mm-hmm. Like, you could go one route or another depending on which set of cards you keep. Right. And, uh, as we've already alluded to, it also f- this, this mulligan also favors certain cards that are very polarizing in how good they are depending on what zone they're in. And a good example of that is Blightsteel Colossus, right? Blightsteel Colossus gets a lot better with this mulligan because how many times have you mulliganed a hand that was holding Blightsteel and you said, well, this is basically already a mulligan? Well, now it's not, right? Yep. When you go to six and you find that Blightsteel steel today, you're pretty much always just going right to five. I mean, within reason, you could have an amazing other five, but the simple truth is it's, it's a real liability because not only is it a dead card in your hand, but it's also a strategic limitation now, barring Thirst for Knowledge or Brainstorm or Jace the Mind Sculptor, right? But You've you've narrowed your options by keeping this hand that has blight steel in it, and that's no longer going to be the case. That's a huge thing. So, yeah. So let's if we and, can. Sorry, one other thing. Not only are you getting blight steel out of your hand, you're putting it in <laughs> absolutely the best possible place in your deck, right? Which right. is the bottom card. That's incredibly yeah. that's incredibly good for blight steel. That can't be overstated. You you it, you guarantee that you won't be drawing it anytime soon. And, like and Bob Mar did twice. Bob Mar did yeah. twice in the VSL. And. <laughs> But that has a very inverse relationship with how good it is in Oath of Druids, right? Because you don't want Gristlebrand to be the bottom card of your library in Oath. This creates really problematic... Well, I mean, if you know it's there, that's useful, but you still don't want it there, right? This creates problematic scenarios for Oath of Druid. What if you've got Orchard Mox Oath with Force of Will, but you've mulliganed to six and you're holding Gristlebrand? Do you put Gristlebrand as the bottom card of your library? Right. So let's turn then to the specific archetype analysis. We've talked about Dredge and how it helps you find Bazaar. We've talked about PO, and we think it, this doesn't really, this probably helps PO the least. So we've got kind of poles there, mm-hmm. right? Now we're talking about Oath. So, you know, ostensibly it helps, the, it's, it's an Oath is a two card, maybe even one card combo, but 
there are potentially some drawbacks, as you've just begun to allude to. Yeah. Number one is the fact that you might not want that creature on the bottom. Number two, <laughs> number two is the fact that modern oath decks are actually more on the homogeneous end of the spectrum. Yeah. That there's their they're designed to um, they're designed to function even without the oath. They're control decks, so they don't really want to mulligan that aggressively that much at all. Right. Right. They are not trying to be a combo deck. Right. Baseline. So how do you think this this ends up for Oath? Do you think this is a, a net positive for Oath? Well, just looking at the advantages and disadvantages of the archetype. So can we clarify something? <laughs> this mulligan rule is a net positive for every deck, right? Right. So that's a but tautology. The so the question, yeah. I think what you're really asking is, does this help Oath in, in relative position to other decks? Yes. And it's putting aside the <laughs> the ground gain from sideboarding right. tactics. Right, right. And I would say yes. I would say this does advantage Oath uh, as as compared to other decks in the metagame because Oath is still at its core the deck that has highly polar cards. Meaning, yes. yes, the deck has evolved to be more of a controlling deck, and it doesn't have to. It's not only reliant on Oath, but it's still the sort of deck that really gets an advantage from having Orchard Mox Oath. Um, and so, greater access to that combination, which as we previously discussed, falls under the heading of combinations of cards. Greater access to that just makes the deck stronger, I think, in every case. And similarly, this raises your ability to answer the hate cards, right? Not only do you have yes. more reliable uh, access to the, the, the Oath deployment and sooner, you also have greater control over the, the sideboard cards you draw. And I think that there's a it's a corner case as to how bad it is to put one of your Oath creatures on the bottom of your library. <laughs> I think it's better than not, actually. I think I it's better so. than... I do so, too. And... But it may, this might be one of those cases where it impacts deck construction. It may be that three creature oath decks uh, become more common again for this very reason. Because yep. putting the third creature on the bottom, that's not so bad. <clears throat> Agreed. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. In addition, you know where it is, so you can always, once you shuffle your library, then it's back to wherever you need it to be. <laughs> well, um, theoretically. It, well, remember what Sam Stott about, said about this. He said, he said that combo decks get a huge advantage since they can mulligan away possibly useless cards. Yep. Now, obviously, Inferno Titan is a castable card, Gristlebrand less so, um, but certainly if you're holding Emrakul or Gristlebrand, those are cards you'd rather have on the bottom of your library. They're better on the bottom of your library than in your hand. Yeah, that is true. Because in the short term, they're on the bottom of your library, but eventually they'll be in the middle of your deck when you shuffle. They'll yeah. be in your deck, not in the middle, but they'll be in <laughs> somewhere no, else. Yeah, they'll be far more likely to be not on the bottom than, than on the bottom. <laughs> Um, right. Yes, I agree with and, that completely. Fetch lands kind of cure all in this sense. <laughs> and also, in that sense, it's like a combo deck where you don't want the tendrils until you're ready to kill them. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. So I think that's exactly, I think it is a huge boost for Oath. I do. I don't think it's a modest boost. I think it's a huge boost. Um, so, so we think it's a big big boost for Dredge, the largest possible boost for Dredge. Yes. A big boost for Oath, mm -hmm. a tiny boost for PO. Uh, a tiny boost for homogenous uh, decks, I think like Xerox and... Um, Landstill. Landstill, and I, really I, controlling decks. Then I what think else? You have to, I think you have to list workshops in with the homogenous deck. Interesting. Workshop Despite the fact of work Mishra's workshop itself. Yeah, so because the deck has evolved such that it doesn't you require... all of your It doesn't require... It's, it, it's, a, it's a threat density deck, right? Not a burst deck. Yep. It's not a combo deck. The deck it's not is, like it's looking for just Trinosphere and then it'll win off the back of that. It needs correct. everything. Yeah, and you, you yeah. want a little bit of everything with that deck. And it's a, it's a critical mass deck in, in its core definition. And it mulligans very well today, right? Workshops is probably the deck that likes recent changes in mulligans the least, right? <laughs> because it was yeah. becoming so consistent 
Now, granted that consistency of workshops post dates the, the Paris Mulligan by a long shot. But the point is, is that the deck, as we've observed, it has kind of plateaued at this point. But the last couple of years have been a story of the, uh, the converted mana cost of that deck coming down, the consistency going up. And this is just one of those decks that has all the, the characteristics that benefit the least from this mulligan. I agree. And I also think, you know, we've talked about what, what if Mishra's workshop itself were restricted in the past? Mm-hmm. We've said that the workshop right now, the deck is designed such that it just would not be crippled by that. Not at because all. Because it's all two, ma- what? Not at all. Yeah. Because it's so much two mana spells yep. that it can survive with it one shops and, you know, seven to eight to uh, soul lands. Yep. Um, and of course, Academy. Um, so, um, I think you're right. I do think, though, this is a huge, a big, not huge, but a big boost to Eldrazi, which is mm. less uniform in that respect. Good point. And yeah, and and doesn't, and much more reliant on finding like the double soul land draw, right? Yeah. Where, or, or the planes in soul land. Yeah, good point. So you're right. I think Eldrazi benefits a lot more than Workshops does. Um, and they are far more likely to have the nice curve out of you know, a, a two drop on one, like a revoker on one or a, or landmox Thalia into yeah. Eldrazi temple, you know, for an uncounterable thought, not seer, that kind of thing is, is more likely to happen. I mean, the, the, uh, the mana base of the Eldrazi deck is so heterogeneous. I mean, between mm-hmm. cavern of souls, Eldrazi temple and ancient tombs, they basic all planes. are, s- and basic <laughs> planes are all so different. Yes. That point. you, you know, you can imagine you have a hand that has like, you know, you can mulligan into a, like a five card hand that, but you get to see, you know, to keep that, that better mixture of mana production. Yeah. And then you could just bottom the second Thalia if you have ca- caverns, mm-hmm. which sometimes, you know, you don't need. So, yeah. And for, for the benefit of our audience, wh- what Steve just said there is that they're, the cards are heterogeneous in the way they produce mana, right? For one, because like planes can cast Thalia and Thought Not Seer, but Thought Not Seer then requires an additional colorless source. And with Cavern, you're forced to, to make choices about do name human versus Eldrazi, right? You get much more information about all the choices along that line with this mulligan rule. You're gonna, I totally agree. Your Cavern choices are all going to be better. You're, you're going to have less hands where you get a Cavern and, a, and two planes, right? Because you're going to be able to bottom some planes when you don't need them. Yep. Um, it's, yeah, just everything about that mana base gets so much better. In fact, the card Cavern of Souls, I think it's actually kind of a the court of sign of kind of card that's a big winner here because yeah. it's the kind of card that tends to it leads to choices in a lot of decks like Eldrazi, but in some other decks too where you've got I don't know humans and wizards and whatever different creature types, and or it's the kind of card that you want to find in conjunction with a specific card like Kyvans are played as one ofs in decks like Bomberman or, or certain Xerox variants where you'd like to make a certain creature uncounterable like Lavinia right. Caverns are played sometimes in as one of just for that spike value, and that spike value goes way up now. Agreed. Uh, so I think we've we're seeing kind of like two poles of the spectrum. Yeah. There's a set of decks like Oath, Dredge, and Eldrazi that gain a lot, and a set of decks like you know Xerox, PO that gain Workshop. much less. Yeah. Workshop. Sorry. Yeah. The three big ones probably have the least to gain. This will that'll actually probably come back. To, help us when we come back to the what impact will this have overall on vintage right at the end of at the end of the episode but what about um and we can probably group bug in with the latter group rather than the former um but are there any other decks you wanted to just talk about in terms of gaining what about survival in particular survival is one of those highly polarized decks right exactly it relies on specific it gets much more powerful with specific combinations of cards right 
So you're more likely to be able to mulligan into a double Vengevine, bizarre hollow one kind of hand. Right. So I think it gains a lot. Um, and what about lands and dark depths combo? <laughs> well, it's, lands is really interesting, right? Because it really straddles the line depending on its game plan and the matchup between being a, a homogenous deck and being a, a polarizing deck. Because there are several matchups where lands can just beat you by relentless land destruction combined with life from the loam, right? Which is a pretty homogenous plan. Life from the loam is important to that. Exactly. But the deck is otherwise very homogenous. And it, I don't know. That's interesting. It's a really interesting case. I, I tend to believe that it probably is. It constitutes one of the, the polarized decks that benefits more. It, yeah, I think it's in, in the, the first group, not the latter. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, because Great. In, in those matchups, life from the loam is quite important. So finding that is important. And because of the nature of dredge, it you can go pretty low if loam is your target and still benefit, right? You're still going to see a bunch of cards by dredging loam. Conversely, if your goal is dark depth thespian stage, this obviously, we've already covered the way that that helps these kind it of two-card combos. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So I think you're right. Great. So let's move now. I think we've just kind of canvassed how this lays out across the metagame. Let's now talk about how it changes interactions between decks. Mm -hmm. And let's start with sideboard plans. Which sideboards does it help more and which does it help less? The, the same principles apply. This helps sideboard plans and or individual cards that are polarized in their impact, meaning individual cards that have outsized effects on a matchup. Your, your Leyline of the Void, your Null Rod, these are the kind of cards that are heavily favored and improved greatly and because simply because they're reliable, more reliable to find, and and in the matchups where they have their outsized effects, their effect is bigger than your opponent's ability and reliability to answer them. I said it early in the episode that if you're fighting Dredge with Leyline, yes, they have greater ability to find their bazaar. You have greater ability to find your Leyline. It's harder for them, on average, to answer a Leyline than it will be for you to find one. Now. That might not upend the whole matchup in every case. It doesn't mean that everybody just puts four ley lines in their sideboard and no one and uh, and dredge can't win. Because as I said before, even though there's a high fail rate, sorry, there's a low fail rate now with the London Mulligan at finding a ley line. Most decks, the average deck, is not designed to function with a low number of cards, which that's, you're going to that's need. That's the problem. Yeah, I Jess think there's guy, an yeah, just guy. It gets better at leylining, but it's also still a, a, an unfavored deck in that matchup because you can't function as well with only four cards. And Comer style decks really are super punished once they get below five mm -hmm. because their entire concept is having a low land count. Right. So you need a land to get started. Now the Mulligan will actually help you find the first land, the new Mulligan, which is helpful. True. Um, but you still need more cards. I think there's an asymmetry. I think that the Dredge deck gains more than the answers gain. And that is here. correct. Yeah. But that's that's hard to quantify. It is hard to quantify because you can look at the numbers of how, how, how far, how the odds are at either deck finding one card and they're functionally very similar. Uh, your Jeskai deck doesn't have uh, Serum Powder, of course, so you're, you're not quite as likely as they are. As right. we, We've already discussed that difference, 94 versus 99%. But at the same time, it's very difficult to quantify how good Dredge is on a multi three with Bizarre versus how good Jeskai is on a multi three right. with Leyline. <laughs> That kind exactly. of scenario, that kind of equivalency favors Dredge strongly. I think so, too. Just because, if no other reason, Dredge will be more likely to have an immediate Dredger. For and, many reasons, yeah. Yeah, and and a, a disruptive effect. Whereas yeah. the uh, Jeskai deck will have Leyline, but it'll take so much longer for it to develop and, and do anything about it. Yep. 
So the contraction from seven to three is more is harder felt on the just guy side. Absolutely. But to your basic question though about matchups and about sideboard card, those kind of polarizing sideboard cards get a big advantage, right? There's no there's no reason why you would mulligan incredibly aggressively to let's say Tormod's crit, right? Yeah. That card is that card's not a, a game winning card. That's a tempo card. Uh Grafdigger's Cage is is kind of closer to the leyline camp, but it's pretty well understood that uh, modern dredge has just a number of built-in ways to fight Grafdigger's Cage via counter magic or removal or just uh slow slow casting their threats depending on the build. Well, what about something like Workshop versus PO in terms of sideboard cards? Who gains? I mean, I, I believe that just- PO gains just on the simple access of having the more uh, the the greater trump via sideboard cards in uh, Hercules Recall, right? Hercules Recall doesn't win the game on its own, simply you know the way Leyline could, but it is just a huge overpowering effect. Where Workshop Null Rod is not as huge and overpowering an effect as as Hercules is, and this Mulligan promotes the combinations of cards that the outcome player needs in order to defeat a Null Rod, whereas. As we've said, with how homogenous workshops is, it doesn't promote. There, it's not like you can sculpt an, an awesome six-card shops hand that you just say, "Oh, this th- okay, this beats outcome." Right? The best thing you're going to get is a reliable null rod plus reliable threat, and you don't get the spikes in polarity of how good your cards are the way outcome does when it can find two basic islands in a, in a Hercules recall. Mm-hmm. So, I think I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. So the the this is it's interesting. So we're we're I think we're creating a, a something of a heuristic when it comes to a matchup. Which deck is the more combo oriented or the more um li- linear and requiring of the fewer component up front? That's the deck that's advantaged in the matchup. And then if you factor in the sideboard card, does it flip that arrangement or exacerbate right. it? <laughs> Yes, I think that's exactly right. I also want to say though that I also want to explore the possibility of how, does this help when for a does this help decks whose sideboards are crowded? So you're not bringing in like four leyline, but you're bringing in two of something. Mm. Does that help or does it make a difference? I guess it depends on how valuable that sideboard card is. Uh, it really depends on where it lands on the spectrum of silver bullet to just yep. like marginal tactic for decks with silver bullets like landstill sideboard. It could be huge. For decks that just have marginal improvements, it's probably not that big of a deal. Yeah, um, you're right. If your deck is filled with things like mo- if your sideboard, I mean, is filled with moat and stony silence and yep, uh, I can't think of another rest example. In peace. And rest <laughs> in peace. Yeah, all, all haymakers from a matchup standpoint. Then yes, this does favor that kind of sideboard as opposed to a, a just guy sideboard that might just have another pyroblast, right, or another swords to plowshares. Those kind of cards. Those kind of cards lose out in this world when if your opponent has haymakers to bring in against you but it is undeniable that every deck will have an easier time finding hate cards against dredge like True. that's just irrefutable it is yep. and you won't need seven anti-dredge cards to be able to find them reliably so well that it's there's interacting so your first statement is true i'm not convinced your second statement is true just because there's interacting changes at play sure you may still need to keep seven dredge cards because your dredge playing opponent is more likely to have bizarre gemstone mine nature's claim post sideboard. And you need to account for that, right? Or if you're on cage, yeah, they're more likely to have bizarre plus misstep. Yeah. I mean, for years, the basic dredge heuristic has been that like over the course of a game, you need two or three anti-dredge tactics because the first are either going to be overcome, countered, or destroyed. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why 
I, I don't think it's safe to say that you can reduce your dredge height, um, especially if our conclusion is, is that dredge is at the top of the pyramid in terms of benefit from this change. Uh, we're yeah. dovetailing into predictions here, but that seems seems doubtless to translate into an increase in top eight percentages for dredge, which would Agreed. suggest that you the only way to go is up in terms of your dredge height. <laughs> so let's summarize. Um, landscape of vintage in that landscape, Kevin, which matchups change and how do they change? I think that the the polarizing the polarizing elements of any given matchup are exacerbated. So it might be the main deck. It might mean like Dredge versus Jeskai, right? Becomes even worse for Jeskai in game one. Then the game starts to revolve more post-sideboard over what sideboard strategy uh, either deck has. Leyline is a big one, right? So I think that... Yeah. But not everyone plays Leyline, right? Many Jeskai players have made do with a combination of Ravenous Trap or Priest, yeah, priest and, uh, and Cages, that kind of thing. I think this pushes the this pushes the format toward more polarizing effect. Just at any given decision point in deck construction, in gameplay, in sideboard decisions, at every point this pushes you slightly more toward the polarizing effect. But let's not let's I, not kid I, ourselves. I mean, if you keep a hand of seven, you know, the day after this mulligan goes legal, then nothing really has changed, right? <laughs> It, it, there's a risk yeah. of overstating things with this whole analysis. Yes, how much this right? Will. <laughs> because if you kept your hand to seven before, you're still going to keep your hand to seven tomorrow. Uh, that doesn't change things. So I do think all these yeah, these things are, are minor incremental things that when you come to a choice in how you're approaching a matchup and you consider that you're going to use the mulligan as a, a, a mechanic in how you approach a matchup like you would for Leyline, for example. Then it comes into play. Then you're incentivized to push harder and you're going to be more likely and you're going to have more interesting decisions to make when it comes time to do it. I agree. Um, I think, uh, you know, so you've been using the term polarizing a lot to specifically refer to decks that are more heterogeneous, that have a particular set of critical cards that they really want. Yeah, decks Uh, or individual cards that have an outsized effect on an individual game. Yes, yeah. yeah, I think that's an even more precise way of putting it. Um, I want to be clear, though, when I'm talking about polarization, generally in Magic, what I'm talking about is the idea that um, the the gap uh, is large between two decks in terms of match win percentage. I th- so a polarized matchup is a matchup where one deck is is, hard, is hugely flip favored over another deck. And that's that's the reason I use that specific definition mm-hmm. is because that is what Ian Duke and the DCI have been using in recent years to describe matchup polarization. Yeah. Um, but I also think you're probably true that in that respect that happens because it's with one for one class of decks for the for the class of decks like Oath, Dredge, Survival. Those decks, to the extent that they have favorite ma- favorable matchups, I think those matchups become more favorable. Yeah. Um, owing to a similar comment that I made earlier in the show, I think uh, I understand what you mean about the polarization of matchups. I think you can abstract polarization out to a, a b- slightly broader lens and. Maybe broader lens is not the right way to say this, but you can abstract a little bit more to talk about in-game interactions too. And that's the sense in which I was using it because I believe that um, when a Jeskai player k- keeps their hand and puts a turn zero ley line into play, that card has polarized that game, meaning the game now revolves around that card. <laughs> and if that card's yeah. in play, Jeskai is a heavy, heavy favorite. As soon as it leaves play, Dredge becomes a heavy, heavy favorite, right? So that's the sense of yes. polarization I'm using, but I understand that you yeah. have a, a particular. It's like when use. Necropotence when Necropotence resolves, the Necropotence player becomes a heavy, heavy favorite. Yeah, 
And so, your Necropotence is actually another good example. It's like a Doomsday-esque card, yeah. but less you need less protection for right, it. Right. <laughs> it's more like a one-card combo. Right. And, and, there, and other cards we've mentioned, like Moat, for example, uh, yeah. against Eldrazi, Moat is the, I have a polarizing card. Like Once that's in play, the game revolves around the presence of that card. I A couple of months ago, I wrote an article about diversity and metagame balance and vintage. Mm-hmm. And I tried to say that there were different factors that you are applied to evaluate um, whether a, uh, a a format is healthy. The main factor being diversity and balance. Diversity meaning like are there a sufficient number of archetypes? Are there sufficiently large enough number of decks, viable decks in a metagame? Mm-hmm. That's diversity, right? You don't want a metagame that's basically a two deck format or a monopoly format. You want a deck that has like you know, a half dozen or more viable decks, and, that- and ideally, ideally three or more tier one decks. Not a one t- one tier one deck format, and, uh, right? And you're speaking to meaningful choice in deck selection. Well, I'm trying to disaggregate these different ways in which we quali- we evaluate a format. So one lens is diversity. Another lens is balance. And the way that the DCI uses the term balance is they they talk about it in terms of overall win rates. So you know they look, for example, across a metagame and they say, okay, deck A has a win rate of 52 percent, deck B has a win rate of 48 percent, but deck C has a win rate of 63 percent. That that's what they mean by balance. So that would be an imbalanced metagame because the the third deck is dominating the format in terms of win mm-hmm. rates. It's far outpacing other decks. Mm-hmm. But that's not a polarized format. That's an imbalanced format. A polarized format is when you look at it win rates between decks mm-hmm. from individual match to match, up. not overall. Yeah, individual matchups, not overall win rate. Right. So a pol- the kind of like perfect example of a polarized metagame would be rock, paper, scissors. Yep. You have, 100% you, win rate every game. Or 0% right. <laughs> win rate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 100 or 0. That's the perfectly polarized metagame. And it's also perfectly balanced because... It's also perfectly right. balanced and it's decently diverse. Yep. Right. I mean, you've got th- at least three viable decks. That's not a lot, but it's perfectly balanced because every deck has the same win mm-hmm. rate, but it's incredibly polarized. And, um, and, and as so, such, so, there's not meaningful choice in deck selection. That's the practical impact. Exactly, exactly, and and also those medi- those decks probably aren't very interactive. You just go one, two, three, <laughs> and you lose or you win, right? right. It's not like you like said. So, but sometimes what happens is that people are talking about one thing when they really mean another. Mm-hmm. Like they'll be talking about the formats in balance when what they really mean is polarized, yep. right? Because you can have a diverse and a balanced format, but you can have that's polarized, and vice versa. You can have a polarized format. That's incredibly imbalanced and not diverse. <laughs> yep. So um, I think what this does. So he, so let's shift to the last question then, which was um, how does this overall impact vintage as a whole? I think actually this will increase metagame diversity. I think that because it, once we kind of mapped out, you know, we kind of like drew this up so that the decks that benefit the most, they have the most to gain are the decks that are actually the tier two and tier three decks in the format right mm-hmm. now, with maybe the exception of Dredge, which is like a 1.5 deck, yeah. right? Yeah. But the tier one decks, Xerox, Shops, and PO, are the decks that actually gain the least. Mm-hmm. So this potentially will increase the diversity of the format. It doesn't necessarily create a new deck, but it actually boosts the decks at the bottom. And it also, I think, will help balance the format by by reducing, by increasing those marginalized decks' win rates. Yeah. But I also think it probably will more polarize certain matchups. So I think it will increase diversity and balance, but possibly also increase polarization. 
Yeah, I think that's pretty astute, and I can't really argue. The only thing that I would that I would say in addition to that is that there could be some unintended, not unintended, there could be some unforeseen consequences as to the value of certain sideboard strategies, and as such, that may throw a monkey wrench in certain matchups yes. um, in, in a way that we can't very well predict right now. Like transformative sideboard strategies in particular, um, those seem to me to have tremendous potential with this. Yeah, that, that would fall like under the, what like I'm saying, dredge, but I was thinking a little more like subtly dredge. just that certain sideboard cards become better when you can get at them more reliably and or in combination with certain effects. Uh, a good example might be the two mana hosers against dredge, like Rest in Peace and Priest. Yeah. We know that the decks that tend to play those cards, like the decks that prefer those cards, like Landstill and Jeskai, have problems because they don't play full Moxen all the time. And right. that, so that's a combination, right? La- Makes those Land Mox Rest in Peace yeah. is a combination that's now more re- uh, reliable to achieve. And so that card, Rest in Peace, might gain a bit from this. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm not making a specific prediction, just that some subtle interactions in how decks prepare for one another could undermine the the larger prediction that you're making but i think in theory yeah. the the whole thing that you've said is very sound the tier 2 decks simply get better because they're they're all they all tend to to populate this uh this segment of the metagame that benefits most from this uh chain and we didn't specifically mention that in our, in the second in, in that tranche of the analysis but two card monty has a lot to gain from this as <laughs> yeah, well pretty textbook um, but i think i actually think that transform cyborg transformative sideboard strategies become far more attractive. I think the idea of going from one strategy to another is dramatically enhanced by this. Mm-hmm. So I so think about Dredge, right? Dredge has to, have to devote some portion of its sideboard to a mirror match, you know, to ley lines if it doesn't have ley line main. Yeah. Um, but if you're Dredge and you pr- previously wanted to dedicate, I don't know, let's say eight cards to Dark Depths combo, maybe you can get away with six and, and with four Serum Powders actually do it reliably. Or maybe instead of devoting 10 to that combo, you can now devote 8. Yeah. You know, Or if you're Oath and you want to transform into a Wargorger combo or whatever the case may be, I think those trans- transformative cyborg strategies become a lot more attractive, in my opinion, with this rule. Well, even more to that point is a transformative cyborg strategy for Dredge that can that sidesteps Leyline of the Void is huge. That's what I'm yeah. saying, yeah. So I agree with you completely. It's Because your opponent will be more laser-focused on finding their thing. Yeah. And then you'll be better off just stepping around it entirely. Yep, agreed. Um, oh. So I think the question that we that I that I posed for the third question was how is this going to overall impact vintage the vintage format as a whole? Um, but I actually so I think we've got a pretty good handle on how it's going to impact the metagame. But I want to imp- talk about how it's going to impact the flow of tournaments. Mm. I think this is potentially very disruptive. Number one, I think the problem is going to be that it's going to induce people to mulligan more frequently to six than they otherwise would have. Mm-hmm. And let me let me explain what I mean. I think that the fence line between a keepable hand and... So there's always been like this... You can think of it as like a, a zone, right? You've got the zone of definitely keepable hands, the zone of definitely unkeepable hands, and then you have a middle zone of, of possibly keepable, possible mulligans. I think that that zone actually shifts more towards the unkeepable category. And, and not only does the zone shift, but the boundary to the zone shifts mm. in both ends. I think that zone becomes bigger as a whole. I think that the boundary, especially the right-hand boundary from the one that touches possible to definite <laughs> uh, mulligan, moves. Yeah. Because, and so I think there's a fence move here because what happens is with the, the your hand of six 
is going to be better as a result. So you really are incented to go from a questionable seven to six more reliably. Do you agree with yeah, that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I really wish we could see so, the numbers. You know, Wizards holds this <laughs> kind of stuff close to the vest. I really wish we could see how mulligans have changed and win percentages have changed over time using the Magic Online data. You have to believe that part of the impetus for this thing, we've talked a lot about it a lot in theory, but you have to believe that there's also a, a quantifiable measurement that they have done that the Vancouver mulligan did not affect win rates at post-mulligans as much as they'd hoped. Yeah. Like with this, all of our discussion about reasons for this can kind of just be swept aside if, if they say, hey, we wanted to increase, you know, we wanted to decrease the reduction in, in game win percentage from mulls to six by X amount, and it didn't happen. As such, we're going to keep, we're going to go back to the well and keep looking. If they have a target yeah. number in their mind, which they very well might, or at least a range of numbers that speaks to how they want their game to be perceived in the marketplace and for esports viewers and that kind of thing, then Fortunately for us is that um, they have that data available to them via Visa, Magic Online, and Arena now, and they can just kind of keep pulling levers until they get to their targeted state. We might not understand that. We might never know it. It might come out yeah. in a tell-all book in 20 all or 30 years. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's all behind the scenes right now. But I, I take yeah. a small amount of confidence in the notion that this kind of change is actually readily quantifiable when you have a platform like they do times two. And a, and a, a high player point. base. And as such, yeah. we might not be the and target a big, audience. A big data set. Yeah, we're not the target yeah. audience in Vintage. In fact, they, they may not even pull the Vintage games in right in their analysis, which is fine. Um, and that's kind of a separate topic. But the point is, is it fills me with some level of confidence that there is actually a measurable way to quantify the success of any given mulligan rule. And we've had enough time with Vancouver, I think, to, to really understand it. Yes. So I think we basically completed our analysis, but there's a few other things I just wanted to touch on before we conclude. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is that I, while I think you and I are both right, that this will boost marginalized decks, potentially thereby increasing overall upper tier metagame diversity, and also I think um, help balance the format even more, there is a, the polarization thing could lead, there's an outside chance that Dredge just becomes too good as a result and that Bizarre needs to be restricted. There's an out. There's a non-trivial chance that that happens, Kevin. Yeah. The other thing is because workshop decks the way they're designed now, it doesn't impact them very much. But if we could all at some point go back to a regime where the value of workshop is so like in a lodestone golem era, this is this rule is so much more powerful. Oh yeah. Or in a trin in a trinosphere era, so it, it, there could be future iterations of vintage where workshop becomes too good as a result, which leads me to the point that. If this really does have negative impacts on Vintage, I don't think it will, will, but it could. If it proves to, though, should there be mulligan rules tailored to different formats, just like card pools and band and restricted lists are tailored to different formats? Yeah. What do you think? I think it is not unreasonable to propose such a thing, but it is mostly unnecessary. I firmly at this I point. firmly at this point, yeah. yeah. I firmly believe that Wizards is is more than comfortable uh, a doing what is best for the vast majority of magic players which is you know limited standard modern and then legacy and then vintage right i'm comfortable that they're going to do what's best for the majority of players by a long shot and i also think they're exceedingly comfortable saying if there's an issue with vintage we just use the banner restricted list or the, the restricted list to uh, to tailor uh i think they're far more interested in restricting yeah. a card or two in vintage than they are trying to manage a separate mulligan well think about it though um 
constructive magic started with one band and restricted list. Mm-hmm. Even when type one and type two were separated, they still had the same band and restricted right, list, which was short sighted. And then they, ev- <laughs> but they eventually separated the lists. Yeah. And the same thing was true for legacy and vintage. Yep. They eventually separated the yep. lists. At some point, it seems to me inevitable, given the just sheer quantity of possible mulligan rules, that you should have mulligan rules tailored to formats. Well, why, why wouldn't you? The band and restricted lists can be that. Why wouldn't you? That presupposes that we are going to continue down a line of, of increasingly complex and powerful mulligan rule. There, why wouldn't we? Well, I mean, a very, as this thing becomes... There's a very easy reason why I we mean, wouldn't, and that is if they hit their their game win percentage metrics that I mentioned earlier, would this change? Sure. We don't know what their sure, target but, is, but if this change hits it, then this will be the last change ever. <laughs> but, well, the, the problem is that game win percentage thing varies from format to format. Sure. You could actually... You could actually have a tremendously positive effect on one format where the game win percentage comes way down. Yep. You, 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 in other words, you increase metagame balance yep. in one format, but you reduce metagame balance in another. And what I'm saying is it's not inevitable yep. that, uh, that, such a, that there should be a tailored mulligan rule for different formats, but it's certainly possible. And it seems to me that as this game ages, given that there have been four major mulligan rule changes mm-hmm. in the last 26 six years, with this one being the fifth, um, it seems to me more likely than not. I mean, also, and also given that there are, as we've just canvassed here, I mean, like 12 different mulligan rules alone that we've talked about, yeah. that that, there, that it's reasonable to assume that certain mulligan rules are better suited to different formats. And if that's true, then it makes sense, just like you have a different band and restricted list for different formats, that you would have different mulligan rules for different formats. Yeah. That's not inevitable, but I think it is certainly possible verging on likely I think- at some future date. Well, I agree. And I would also point out that we already do have different mulligan rules for different formats because we have different mulligan rules in multiplayer format. You get a free mulligan to seven in Commander yep. and and two HG, and it's not yep. sanctioned by Wizards. But we also have different mulligan and even you know different whole different rules su- uh, structures for different uh, old school format, right? Yep. Because you don't Paris mulligan in old school, do you? Or Van- Vancouver? Uh, they do the Van color. They do do the oh, Vancouver Mulligan, I thought that mulligan, certain groups actually. were uh, against Vancouver Mulligan. Maybe it's the the Alpha Card 40 I'm, that I'm thinking yeah, of. Yeah, the Alpha Card 40 uses first edition Mulligan. There you go. That's what I was thinking of. Okay. Yeah. And so, Which is no Mulligan. Right. <laughs> and so we already do have that. And, and yeah. on top of that, there already also is different game uh, starting algorithms in place for best of one in Arena, which is not the sort exactly. of thing we can expect to integrate in the paper side of, of best of one because it's extremely complex <laughs> methodologically but it could be that we end up with dedicated mulligan rules to best of one formats if they become popular in paper i have recently played in a so-called quick draft one uh, my shop same one that runs vintage here the gaming warehouse um uh, recently ran a couple of quick drafts that's a best of one format in paper and it was very interesting oh. and very fun and very fast uh, but the thing that was immediately obvious to everyone involved was this needs its own mulligan rule because mulliganing in a best of one format is it's obviously just increases uh, your I'm sorry it decreases your expected game win percentage so significantly that in a format where game win percentage is directly analogous to match win percentage as it is in best of one it's borderline unacceptable for those of us who've been using other mulligans uh, for so long and best of three for so long. so sure. I think what you're proposing is totally reasonable I don't think we're close to it necessarily with this change or maybe even the one after it agreed but it should be on the table agreed yeah i'm not proposing that at this point in fact i like what this possibly does so yeah i would not be proposing that right now all right well i think we've wrapped it up the sky is not falling (laughs) i would like Um, i would like us to talk about 
how likely we think this is, right? Oh, oh, you mean how likely will this actually be applied to vintage? And magic. That's a good question. This is not guaranteed to apply. (laughs) That's right. So we do have, we're not, um, this is not an out of the blue (laughs) thing. We know that every time they've tested a mulligan rule, they've implemented it writ large. So um, I think if, and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, uh, circumstantial evidence that suggests that the decision is very likely. Uh, I would point to the yes. examples you just gave. I would point to the the fact that this has already been widely considered by R&D since we've got an article going back to 2015 that specifically mentions it. And I would yes. also point to the fact that their announcement article and or the follow-up to it, I'm not sure if it was in the first version. Um, but anyway, their article specifically has the rules language already typed up for it, right? Like they've got the language for how it would change the comp rules already defined. All of these signs point to high likelihood, I think, of this being adopted. Agreed. So that when do you think that would happen? This summer? Well, the, all the other mulligan rules happened as a fast follower to their test events, right? I thought it was within a month or two. I, I, re- I would have to go back and research. It felt like it was within a month or two of each of the prior tests that they were fully adopted. I can't imagine yeah. it lingering very much beyond that because this is going to be at a Mythic Championship. They're going to get a ton of feedback from the players that weekend. They're going to probably do some interviews uh, shortly thereafter for the couple of weeks following. But my feeling is they probably expect what's going to happen and there's just going to be some validation, right? Does this, does these results from these players fly in the face of our expectations? No. Okay. Then we're good. Or does it confirm (laughs) them? Yep. There's a risk of confirmation bias, of course, but, um, but I just believe that all signs point to this will be adopted. Agreed. So get ready, prepare for (laughs) it. Right. Be thinking about it, and uh, we will too. And I would say to that point, when and if this does become a reality for vintage players, practice, practice this mulligan because you should know your deck and you should know the kind of game time decisions, the kind of turn zero decisions that you need to make when you're evaluating seven cards, you know, bury two. That is, I mean, it's like resolving a dig through time on turn zero (laughs) whenever you mulligan, right? It's, it's actually incredibly complex and, for certain decks, game-changing. And so I, I do think this mulligan rewards preparation, rewards skill. And I personally am, am looking forward to playing with it. Whether or not it becomes a reality and the effects on the metagame, are, I, I'm separating that from my interest in trying it, which I am pretty excited about. Steve, how do you feel? Are you excited by the prospect? Um, I am excited, actually. I was, I'm more enthusiastic now than I was when we started the podcast. <laughs> Interesting. So. Interesting. Well, we'll definitely be following this one closely, and it may be as soon as our next show, in fact, that we have some feedback on it, because we're, we're about a month away here from the Magic uh, Mythic Championship London, and the feedback could be fast and furious even that same weekend, so we'll just have to see. And with that, thank you for listening to episode 88 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other Magic players can find this podcast and your impressions of it. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.